To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jai-Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Cass and Tamar. Hello, hello. And Ewan Gledo. Hiya. On today's episode, we're discussing Ma director Tate Taylor's new action flick, Ava, critically acclaimed comedy drama, Gajillionaire, from up-and-coming cinematic voice, Miranda July, and Netflix's new take on the much-adapted Sherlock Holmes series, Anola Holmes. Let's start with Ava, starring Jessica Chastain, John Malkovich, and Colin Farrell. Monsieur Hamilton? You like what you see? Peter, why would someone not want you to be alive anymore? What are you talking about? Code 8227. Confirmed. Subject's closed. I know you like Ava. But she's a liability. No, not her. She's best to breathe. I recruited her. I trained her. She's talking to the targets! Ava. A black ops assassin is forced to fight for her own survival after a job goes dangerously wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll start this discussion first and I'll try not to be as bleak as possible. Um, I'll start with the positives. Firstly, I think that Jessica Chastain is one of sort of the golden uh, actresses of a generation. I think her, Amy Adams, uh, Kristen Stewart and Elizabeth Moss, I think they're sort of my top goals where I just see that I like the work that they they, they produce, they're, they're sort of craft. Um, Ava sort of signals a really interesting point with Jessica Chastain because she, she hasn't really sort of gone the action route before, if, if I'm not mistaken. I think she's, she's sort of stayed to drama. She's dipped her toes into the uh, indie market. And I think this is her f- first foray into action. And obviously, this is a film that's following on from the, you know, uh, David Leach, uh, Charlie Theron, Atomic Blonde, John Wick uh, type of aesthetic. And uh, to say that this does not hit the mark um, ironically enough, it would be an understatement. Um, this is a film that's sort of devoid of anything, and and, and I hate to sort of, I, I really do detest the fact that when I watch something, I'm just sort of bored at every single entity that's sort of showcased on screen. There's sort of not one little small element here that sort of rings true, where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm surprised with that, or um, if not, like I'm slightly intrigued. There is one or two things here, so it's not a complete failure. But this is a film that just uh, is devoid of any and all calibre to elevate the, the the incredibly almost borderline material at hand. What makes this story even worse is the fact that there's actually depth on offer here to really sort of look at a, um, a character study of, of a woman broken, find it will finding herself in a, in a particularly demanding job and being able to struggle with the sort of the adaption of being a an addict into this world of, of, you know, trying to find something else to fill that void. Um, there's something really interesting, and I can imagine in a, in a first sort of draft, this would be in a very different film. Now, obviously, the context of this the, uh, behind the scenes is that it's had a few issues with certain directors, certain writers. Uh, the film was once called Eve, and now it's Ava, which I, I find, like, generally quite interesting. I wonder the reason behind that. I'm not really sure. But the, 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 the sort of the final product here is like the quintessential stereotypical assassin film that just has no interest in exploring itself. I mean, every single element here lacks creativity. The editing is subpar. The blocking is subpar. The uh, fight choreographer is 
diabolically poor. Um, I think the color palette is off. I think the color grading is 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 incredibly sort of subpar again. I think like again, it's just all the filmmaking prowess is just off kilter. There just seems to be sort of no intrigue in the actual genre, which is such a shame because when you see sort of directors like Jordan Peele or you know uh, Jordan Peele, you know his contemporaries look at David Gordon Green of Halloween, and I'm, spe- I'm specifically choosing horror here because it's a film that you can really indulge in. You can really, really, really find a filmmaker that's just enjoying the craft. And I think with Atomic Blonde and with the likes of you know John Wick, there are filmmakers, a crew there that in- enjoy making films. Here. I just find that Taylor is either out of his depth or has no intrigue of doing this. And obviously what I've just mentioned before, this literally looks like it and I know put intended, but this is a gun for hire for Taylor. I don't think you can necessarily go from something like the help to Ma to this. I understand that someone's trying to diversify the palette and to that, I can't really complain. I don't, I don't think anyone wants to make the same film nine times out of 10. I mean, just look at Woody Allen, but, um, this is definitely a film that just lacks creative punch. Uh, and again, like I said, there's just no vividness or flair. And I, and I also think the edit is just, there's something sort of not right with how it's structured. It feels like there's like 30 minutes either missing or there's sort of an edit where they've taken depth out and added it here and there to make sort of this character study and then put in these action sequences. Again, wouldn't be surprised if this has been reshot quite a couple of times. I just think like this is a sincerely opaque and hollow, uninventful sort of derivative bore. There's nothing really sort of I can come out from it to say that I'm intrigued. I think the opening is sort of terrible and, and really sort of SNL inspired parody, which is really strange. The one thing I think is pretty particularly good here is John Malkovich. John Malkovich knows exactly what type of shit is in here and he just soaks it up and he loves it. And that's that's, that's the passion I can get. Like he's just sort of, I'm not going to say he's in on the joke because I don't think anyone making this is sort of making it to be subpar, don't get me wrong. But he's definitely having fun here. And I think Justine does what she can with the material. She also produced this. So again, there's a lot of passion in here. But Colin Farrell's terrible. That whole sort of storyline he's got is just, again, devoid of any sort of purpose intrigue. Diana Silvers is here in sort of like this small blood cameo, which serves up like a, a, a sequel we're never going to see. And it just goes, there's just sort of these small moments where there's, there's a narrow mindedness where, you know, you've, you've got this world building, but they can't even get, they can lay the foundations to make that to sort of make a film in itself rather than sort of laying these sort of secondary foundations for this so-called like, you know, sequel being. And I just think it's terrible. I mean, all around this is just an absolute shit fest. Uh, it really is. I, I sort of like the score at, at times, but then I was just having like sort of like Jason Bourne flashbacks where I was like, you've, you've really just sort of really missed the boat here by trying to make something and you, you sort of five, ten years too late. I think the one redeeming factor that could have been here is just to make the action sequence feel more organic and more authentic. Everyone sees, seems to have like this extent, extension of, and, and what I mean is that when someone throws a punch, the, the, the arm just stays there for like 15 seconds longer than it would do. And it's like, it's just, again, it's the choreography just slow. It just feels like so, like, I don't want to say like flaccid, but it, it's just, there's just sort of no energy to anything. And it's just shot like shit. I mean, at least sort of bring someone in who, who can hone that craft, get a co-director. And if, if Taylor can focus on the drama, get a co-director to focus on, on the action. Look what the, the first John Wick film did. You know, it's possible. I just think this is an absolute like shit fest on all fronts, to be honest. And 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 this is a film that again a lot of people put a lot of time in, but 
I think Jessica Chastain will want to forget about this quicker and uh, you know rather than later. Yeah, just to echo your point, I think really other than maybe horror, action is the genre that every year just has the most endless amount of shit that comes out, just lifeless attempts to create something in the genre. We've talked on the podcast before about the tax collector, uh, Project Power, and you watch a film like this. And even though I think those two other films are just worse because they go for something and they just completely fail for what they're going for, at least I can respect them for putting out and trying to like do an actual style and doing something unique and interesting. This is, I think, the best word that you said is lifeless in nearly every sense of the word. Uh, you look at Tate Taylor's career, and even though he doesn't necessarily have too many masterpieces to his name, at least his films, you know, The Help, Ma, they have a distinct style. They have a personality to them um, that are at least in some ways fun to watch, or at least engaging in some aspect. There's some life to his films normally. Here, there's just nothing. I think the action, it's not the worst action I've seen all year, but it's genuinely the editing is just bad. There's so many awkward zooms and cuts that are laughably poor. Uh, the color palette, like you mentioned, for some reason is just completely void of any life within it. Um, and I think you look at these characters and these actors and you have a pretty decent ensemble, actually. You have a lot of really, really talented actors who are just who just do nothing. Their scripts have no life to them, but even the performances themselves, they're just there. Every single thing about this movie is not necessarily offensive, in my opinion. Um, it's not necessarily, oh, this is, you know, just what are they thinking? It's just every single part of this film, every aspect is void of any life or anything to engage or captivate me. Again, I mean, it's better in my opinion than a film that tries to be really stylized and just completely fails in that style. But ultimately this is just a forgettable bland movie. Um, I think the superior bland action film this year is the rhythm section, but ultimately they're both pretty bland. I think that's the thing. It's, it, it's definitely trying to sort of set it up for a sequel, like Jack said, and it's, you know, it's doing all these avenues and subplots to prepare itself for that, but it's so bland and just sort of very shallow. In, in its direction and its action it's just generic it's riffing off of other other films in the genre like john wick it, it has nothing unique to offer if that's in script or the performers or the direction there's nothing unique or interesting about what they're trying to achieve here there's there's nothing it's it, it's generic but it, it it falls into that category of being sort of incom not incompetent but shallow as well as what's the word just, just poor quality. It's, it's sort of, it doesn't come together like it should because you've got a lot of talent on display. You've got obviously a director who, you know, he'll, he'll at least know his stuff. It just doesn't click, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Can I just add as well, like, um, I, I, just to both on your points, as a start with Carson, it's interesting they bring the rhythm section up because I watched that a few weeks before. Um, and it was on my watch, watch list for ages. It was probably the, the, the film I was going to watch just before the, we went to national lockdown. So it's it's been on my sort of watch list for a while. And to be honest, dare I say, after watching Ava, I found myself like slightly more appreciating that film. And, I, and just to be quite like honest here, I think that's also in the very same vein as this, terrible. And I just found myself, I was like, at least with, with, with the rhythm section, it sort of went there a little bit. Well, it sort of pushed the boundaries in. It's not sort of, it's action sequences, because don't get me wrong, Again, here, it, it just feels derivative, but at least with the rhythm section, I felt that they pushed 
slightly more into the fact of what they could get away with within that sort of 15 age rating. And I think Blake Lively puts a, puts a really good performance in, although that, that accent is generally um, horrific. But the, the one thing as well that, that we, we, we're saying about, I think the film Waste, and again, it has an ensemble cast, is that you've got like the likes of Gina Davis here, Joan Chen, which we don't actually get to see a lot of um, um, anymore. So I, I felt sort of really glad that they brought, you know, their Twin Peaks, you know, infamous uh, performer back to the big screen. And to be honest, she's again, just wasted in this subplot that's like, are we really doing sort of like a John Wick inspired underground underbelly? You know, I just thought, I would just like, are we really gonna go down this avenue of just re reiterating the exact same shit just at least you can make this more gritty and sort of take away from all that you've seen before and just have, even if it is a, like a stereotypical one note, you know, let's say quote unquote classic inspired action film, at least then they can get the actual foundation down. I mean, the, the again, not to sort of go back onto um, to reiterate what I've just said, but I know I've just sort of applauded John Malkovich. I think one actor that I'm slow, I'm actually I'm not going to say that, one actor that I've, I've liked ever since Smoking Aces, which is 20, 2006, who I've seen in quite a lot of stuff and always appreciate, and, and I, I don't think he gets a big enough rep for what he actually does, is Common. He has absolutely nothing to do here, but yet he's even, again, he's very monotone in how he speaks and how he performs. He doesn't showcase a great amount of emotion through sort of a visual an emotive provocation like from his performance skills. Again, he's probably an app, a rapper first and then he's moulded into an actor. But I've got to say, against Jessica Chastain here, I, I wouldn't probably, in, in nine times out of ten, I wouldn't probably be able to guess her that she's the she's she, she's the actress here and he, he's the rapper. I, I don't want to sort of sound that condescending. But you're talking about an actor there that's worked to like, like, you know, American Gangster, Wanted. You know, he has done the bits here and there, but I think he's a, he's a performer that gets it right more, you know, more often than not. And here, I think he sort of it uh, puts in a rather decent performance. But again, he's put there's this like this just weird subplot again about you know there's a there's a hidden history between these three people, and they go out to dinner and it's excruciatingly boring and it's also quite uncomfortable to watch, but not sort of consciously so. It's just like right, someone's got drunk and then they're saying like inappropriate and also like quite harsh things it just puts you in this environment where nothing feels organic everything feels like it comes by a script and a subpar one at that but like you said about we're seeing these really boring I, I, I don't want to go in I don't want to say any names because I don't really want to like go into any filmmakers because I feel I've probably done that enough already we're going to speak about some other stuff later but Again, like if this has been signed off, and this was once Eve, this is once to be set up as a as a franchise. I just find that very interesting for an actress like Jessica Chester to go forward forward with. I just, I just didn't think that would be her um, avenue to sort of evolve in. I mean, don't get me wrong; I think she's a fabulous actress. I, I, I can't speak highly enough of her performance skills. But here, it just feels like she's trying to sort of let's just say I feel like she's a step behind everyone else and she's having to fill that void of getting that on the checklist. I don't know if anyone else felt like that. It felt like a career checklist, so I have to do an action film. And um, it's a shame because she's just an actress that, that, that in the last few years has, has started to go down that blockbuster avenue. I mean, the Dark Pit Phoenix performance, is that all at her feet? I'm not too sure I wouldn't want to say, so I think that's more of a, you know, Kinberg and, uh, and, and the Fox hierarchy overall but she's just an actress that as of late I, I don't want to say it sort of disappointed me I feel like that's sort of slightly too you know 
strong to, to sort of annihilate her. But I mean, she's worked on some incredibly interesting sort of performances. And then, you know, we've we've got it, Dark Phoenix, and I just feel that, yeah, that there's sort of this. I don't know. I just I just. I'm trying to sort of sum up my thoughts, but I just feel like she's an actress that doesn't need to sort of go down that blockbuster route to prove to everybody or to be a box office draw. I don't think she is. I think ironically enough, I think she's in the very similar vein to Fassbender where they make very interesting films, but they're just not box office draws. You know, Jessica Chastain could make a film like Ava, but it isn't going to bring 160 million to the, to the table. Fassbender makes Assassin's Creed, you know, it just doesn't bring it to the table. And ironically enough, they're, they're both in the sort of the X-Men era now, which has died of death. So it'd be interesting to see where Jessica Justin goes from here. I don't know what she's got lined up. I don't know if it chapter two did her any good in the long run. Is that just like, I don't know if that's just like more of a consensus on fan service going a little bit too far. I don't know. But uh, but no, Ava to me is just a very big, big, big misstep. Yeah, it's it's... I can't see where she's gone from here because obviously I assume they were banking on this being a success and doing a sequel and all that stuff. But now that that's sort of, you know, inevitably not going to happen, there's sort of nothing she can jump to. I know she's got a film with Andrew Garfield coming out soon, but aside from that, there's there's no project that I can think of where that's the next step for her. So obviously it's like you said, where it's just to tick the box of doing an action film. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that Andrew Garfield thing looks um, <laughs> slightly strange. I'm not going to lie. Um, I, and Garfield's an interesting performer. I mean, there is this, uh, I mean, weirdly enough, speaking about Kimberg or Dark Phoenix and talking about the action film, I think a few years ago, her little exploit in wanting to do an action film with Lupita Nyong'o, and I believe, is it Marianne Cotillard and Penelope Cruz? Is, that, is it 355? Is that what it was? Like this massive thing that blew up at Cannes that this, you know, they're all going to make an action film. And I I think a few people have dropped out. Well, that's also directed by Sam and Kinberg. So if this is, if if this is in any way, again, she's not behind the camera. um, She's not writing the thing. So I don't want to put everything at her feet again. But I think if this is, if this is a telling of what's to come, again, this may be a sort of different breed totally. I mean, I'm not really sort of, sure about Kinberg behind the camera with Dark Phoenix. I think the finale to that film arguably is probably one of the best set pieces throughout that trilogy. But nevertheless, I think he's a filmmaker that still has a lot of question marks around him. And I think Chastain to go forward to make that is going to be a very interesting one because all that brings is high high profile performers in an action film. I mean I don't know if anyone's got deja vu there, but we're just going through that now, and it's sort of gone to shit, if I may say so myself. So it'll be interesting to see where we where she goes forward with this. I mean, she's got the division with Jake Gyllenhaal, this video game now. I just, I just, I don't know. Maybe it's a long time since we'll get to see her in stuff like Crimson Peak or you know Zero Dark Thirty or even Lawless Tree of Life. Maybe we'll. We, Maybe she's gone that route of Robert Patterson where maybe the independent market's just not viable enough. If, you are, if you're not getting yourself out of there, you know, she, she's got the Oscar norm. Does she really need to go anything? She didn't need to prove herself to anyone, including me. But I just feel like this is probably not a really right way to go. Not, not Maybe for exposure, yes, but for, for credentials. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got a filmography stacked with stuff that's just subpar and just underwhelming. Um, I'd stay clear. I really would do. I don't think that game's for everybody. 
and yes, she'll make a shit ton of money for it, but I think she probably should made a shit ton of money from everything else. And that's including independent actors as well. I think Chalamet is going to get a, a, a need to stay clear. I think anyone of that that ilk, where they come from an independent background, um, regardless of gender or or, or even age, uh, probably wants to stay clear of, of of the blockbuster manifesto. Ultimately, I think Chastain's probably going to be fine coming out of Ava. I don't think one, you know, bright side about COVID, they can dump this film and no one's going to see it. No one's going to talk about it. And then it's just going to die a horrible death, but no one's going to notice. But even like, I think I'm actually a bit more hopeful that she did this project because if she's going to go into Spy, uh, Spy Film 355, which is supposedly coming out next year, January 15th, which is not necessarily a promising release date. <laughs> um, but if she's going to continue into doing these more action mainstream films, especially as a producer, I at least like the fact that she's trying to dip her toe into the water and get that experience because that is how you're going to grow and get better. The first time might not be a knockout hit and especially with everything behind the scenes that happened with this film, but at least she's getting that experience and hopefully she can build up on it. Um, but ultimately, I feel like if she ever wanted to rejoin the Oscar conversation, she could just sign any contract and make it happen. So I really don't think that she's going to be impacted by this in the long run. Um, hopefully, though, this is just a starting point for what's going to be an interesting like phase of her career. But only time will tell. Going on from that then, Carson, it's an interesting sort of conversation to have because I also sort of would agree with you. I don't think the future, and I'm saying in three or four or five years, I think we'll probably have to reassess it then. But for the meantime, I think she's probably been saved by this idea of, you know, not so this idea, but she's been saved by COVID essentially uh, because this would most definitely have bombed. It would have made more news with the, you know, the contextual issues behind, you know, the filmmaking. Um, but, I, but speaking of which, I think... The eye should be on Tate Taylor here because he's had a string of films after The Help, which obviously this is this golden boy of Oscar credentials. And then all of a sudden he's slowly but surely gone down an avenue that I don't really think anyone else would have predicted. I mean, The Help, I think, again, you say what you will about that film. I think Viola Davis has come out and said a few things about it after the fact, saying that, you know, it's, it's, it's basically a white saviour film. And I think you can probably look at it through that lens and it'd be hard to disagree with her. Um, and then you have, you know, Get On Up, you know, with the late, great Chadwick Boseman, uh, which I think is, a, is, is, a, is an absolute fine performance. I don't like how the film is shot and its aspect ratio. And that's probably a, a big concern of it. I, don't, I hate the 185 point one in that film, not to get, you know, really nerdy about it. And then you've got The Girl on the Train, which I think is, is, an, is, a, is a nose dive. Then you've got Ma, which I think... I don't, I don't, I don't have like a conspiracy about it, but I, again, no one's going to make that film knowing how well that would have hit off in meme culture. But I don't, I think that then underwhelms the fact that that film is absolutely grotesquely bad. And I mean, that's that. Well, that's me being nice. Uh, and then you've got Ava. So for me personally, I think it's a, it's sort of a really rocky road of a of a filmography. Now, the last three films he's made have been incredibly sort of on-the-nose genre pieces. You've had thriller, you've had horror, and then you've had action. And then you've had a biopic, and then you've had a drama as well. So he's, he's definitely sort of trying to find his feet here. But to me, that's three films on a bounce that have been woefully bad. This is not... Actually, That's that would be a time, wouldn't it? Which is worse, this or Ma? I mean, I'll leave that for another episode because that's most definitely uh, one for the ages. But to be honest... I think Taylor might need to sort of revitalise himself here because there's nothing sort of in in the pipeline for him. And and anyone looking at Ava to sort of 
see if he can be a gun for hire, which of course this undoubtedly is. I'm not, I, this is not his project and I, I feel quite bad shitting on the guy for it because obviously he's been brought in to sort of st- steady the ship. I mean, in hindsight, you know, may, maybe maybe loyalty might not be a, the best thing to approach in filmmaking, but uh, I think Tate Taylor needs to have a really, really big wake-up call here because, you know, you've got 2.1 on Letterbox, you know, Mars 2.5. You know, the girl on the train is 2.9. I don't know. I mean, it's a steady, you know, slope of decline there. I don't know where he go. He's the big one. I don't know where he would go next. I'm sure that Blumhouse would probably be able to sort him out with a, with a minuscule budget and him to really sort of go forward. But Christ almighty, if he gets something of the likes of 50 to 60 to 70 million, I'd be, I think we could be in for probably the next two or three years a big train wreck. So Jack, we always talk about how we sometimes have similar opinions. I'm going to differ on you with you a little bit here. I re- watched Ma for the first time like a month ago, and I genuinely like that film. I think it is not like a masterpiece, like what it's going for, not necessarily, but as like a comedy, as like a horror camp film, I think it's fucking phenomenal. I think it's hilarious. And I think when you look at Tate Taylor continually in his career, it's when he has that comedic tone that he really starts to thrive. I think he really needs to start playing into that more, get away from the seriousness, get away from the drama, get away from the social commentary, because all that stuff you tend to fail with, focus on that absurd comedy. And I think you really could create something really fun and really interesting. Um, Honestly, I would just be excited for a Ma too, though, because I think Ma so perfectly compared to any other film he's created mixes that where he knows he's trying to do like this horror social commentary thing but he puts it in the backbone of this really absurd campy horror film and that's why it works so well it doesn't feel like oh you have this really boring like drama part he just it's always funny it's always comedic and I think that is why Ma works so well for me in terms of his filmography it knows what it's trying to be compared to all of his other films that feel like they don't know what they're trying to be or they're just bad at what they're trying to be I really think like Ma when you look at Tate Taylor Ma is like the perfect example of what he should be making right now because that is where it seems like he thrives the most it's not a masterpiece not you know best of the year or anything it is a campy shitty horror film but like as a director that is where he thrives so that's where he should be staying well, I mean, just to look at my review on Letterbox, I think I might be, I might even be more positive on Ma than you might be. So, maybe I'll, I'll probably keep that one quiet. But um, it's an interesting one about camp horror because we sort of, we, I speak about this every other week. I feel, and uh, I'm sorry to uh, to cut you off, you and just come in at any time. Don't worry. I, but I just want to get just to say this: I, I've sort of gone on that road now with horror, where I, I think that it's such an on an intellectual point where. It's so elevated and heightened. I know people on film Twitter hate that, but, you know, deal with it. That They, they just hate the fact that, that horror has got, got this second win now where they're, they're, they're actually discussing social commentary, mental illness. Horror's always done that, don't get me wrong, but they've always done that in an 80s fashion where it's a B-mover, where you've got John Carpenter doing it with, with no budget and it, it becomes in cult status. Now, these are box office rockets. You know, you've got Us, Get Out, Split, Glass... These are films that make a decent amount. Look at Happy Death Day. I mean, that's single-handedly revitalised this camp horror. Um, so there's definitely a market for it. Where Taylor's probably best is not making Mar 2 for for the sake of you know humanity. We've had a shit year to begin with. We don't need another one. But I think a Final Destination film has always been on the cards, hasn't it? For for a second for a second sort of rebooted follow-up. I also think that I know the Happy Death Day to, to you and Happy Death Day is sort of 
got its own individual crew that want to sort of make that third and final one. Um, I think it would be perfect in something like that. But I, again, I probably would agree with you. Something like Final Destination, where it doesn't take itself too seriously, it really heightens the camp. But he can also work with John to a little bit more of extent to get maturity with it. Because I thought that was what Ma struggled with, is sort of lack of genre with, regarding tension and, and the horror tropes. I think Final Destination, he would really sort of elevate his craft. But I also think that something like Countdown would have done him great. Because Countdown, at the end of the day, is just an absolute hollow piece of shit where it's just a horror film with... You know, it's also got you know a Carlisle from uh, Twilight, so it's, all, it's got a soft spot. Don't get me wrong, but a Peter I can never pronounce his last name. Ficinella, there we go. Uh, I butchered it. Um, but I think that Countdown is a film that needed that more tongue-in-cheek, so tongue-in-cheek uh, sense of humour where you know they can play with genre. They can you can have a lot of blood and gore, but you can also at the end of the day leave the, the you know the theater knowing that you didn't really go too far into trying to make it this serious piece of piece of cinema sorry that film go, goes down that road to, to a point of oblivion but i, I guess there's hope for tittle and i think i'm on the same page as you i'd definitely like to see him do that sort of uh tongue-in-cheek horror um there's definitely a market for it blumhouse are booming i mean they've just announced with amazon like eight features like an exclusive partnership um horror's not dead uh, the MCU is, but the horror isn't. I'd say that much, you know. So I, th- I think, you know, when people say that, that it's, it comes to its lifespan, I mean, I think superhero stuff is is coming to, I don't want to say the end of it, and I know I'm going around the houses here, but I think the superhero genre is, is getting tired. It's getting, you know, the legs, because everybody and anyone is doing it now, and there's, there's not much how you could sort of elevate that material. At least with horror, I think horror's got legs for years. I mean, Hammer Horror lasted, what, f- three decades the universal horrors lasted two decades here and there a lot of misses don't get me wrong but you know the pushing of boundaries of, of, of filmmaking at that point so i don't know here i think we're seeing a really good revitalized moment of horror and i think there's loads of room to, to make tongue-in-cheek horror you know i do want to like i do want to watch final destination again and, and laugh at it in a nice way that makes sense but uh as long as it doesn't do a saw movie or something like that i can i can i can live with it I can see him doing a Saw movie. That that might be his next step. Yeah, a jigsaws, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I do, I think that 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 life cycle needs to die. Although I am intrigued of Spiral, which I'm so annoyed at lines get pushed that back because I'd actually love to see that. I, I'm not even joking. I'm not even saying this ironically. I'm actually really excited to see that film. I think putting a have you ever, I don't know just for uh, excess material here though. If you actually read up about how that film was made. Uh, so, um, apparently he's in a he's in a like he made this film didn't he um, Chris Rock I can't remember the name of it and then Tyler Perry put the uh, the poster in one of his films and they were doing sort of these in jokes and then all of a sudden in a Tyler Perry film which I think is it was like based on what Boo and My Day of Halloween which generally gives me chills speaking about that film but there's actually like a comment of him being in another Saw film and I think Chris Rock was at a wedding and then like a Lionsgate producer said yeah we, you should make that and Chris Rock would, let's get the details, let's sign it. And then two years later, we've got a Saw film with Chris Rock playing a cop. That's how Hollywood works. So Tate Taylor, Christ, Tate Taylor could be making a Scorsese-inspired feature next. You mark my words. Goodfellas 2, Casino 2. Nah, it's definitely going to happen. Can I, I just I would, say one yeah. thing about Ava? Is, why is Eoin Crawford in... For about two minutes at the start. 
Do you know, Ewan, that is actually so interesting because he's an actor who, like, in 2004 and 2006 was, like, this, the, you know, the, the English, you know, expat who went over and has done fairly well for himself after his little glorified cameo in Titanic, um, which has is, is, is sort of got into its meme culture. But he's an actor who's, like, really sort of taken the American TV by storm and has slowly but surely got himself back on track regarding, uh, uh, you know, the cinema. I mean, he's, he was in San Andreas and stuff like that, and he's doing bits here and there. I mean, the last thing I've seen him in, which I thought was relatively interesting, was Sanctum, and that's a decade ago. I think that's an under, underrated feature. But, I mean, he's, he's popping up here and there. But, again, very strange sort of performance there, to be honest, with his Welsh accent. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Let's move next to Kiljillionaire, fronted by star of HBO's Westworld, Evan Rachel Wood. After this person. And clear. Now. There's a camera there, there, and there. Cash. Nope, mini order. This is not a cheap tie. Most people want to be cajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine. Ha, ha, ha. Cry, cry, cry. Me, I prefer to just skip. So do I. February, March. Two con artists have spent 26 years training their only daughter to swindle, scam, and steal at every turn. During a desperate and hastily conceived heist, they charm a stranger into joining them, only to have their entire world turned upside down. Carson, uh, you take away cajillionaire this week. So we're in this time period where basically everything that played at Sundance is now just coming out. We're at that time of the year before all the big award contenders come out. I truly think what Miranda July did with Kajillionaire is something special. I think this is a stunning film. Um, It starts off as this very offbeat kind of comedy, but quickly it finds its footing as this really deep exploration of family and what does being in a family mean and who is your family? What is right? What is wrong? Um, it kind of takes on this feeling of if like shoplifters meets parasite in a way, but like very American and quirky in that sense. It is about a family who basically are con artists and that's how they make their living and they live in very humble ways. Um, and the main character, Evan Rachel Wood's character, um, kind of has this whole like midlife crisis where she's like 26 and she doesn't really have a lot of like connections to the world or family or time for her. And with the help of Gina Rodriguez's character, she kind of has to explore what her life has meant to this point um, and where to go from here and her relationship with her family. And this is, like I said, I just think this is stunning. I think it has that absurd comedy that is funny and it's interesting and it's unique, um, but then it also has that deeper level of connection that just fully connected with me. I am shocked that this film is getting so many kind of mixed reviews considering I think the emotions here are poignant. I think they're impactful. I think they're important. Um, You know, this is truly, I think, when I say like, I love this film, I'm talking about top five of the year. I think this is stunning. It it looks really good. Like it it looks like definitely top five contender for this year, but it's, it's been quite a limited year as is. I think the one thing sort of dragging me into it is seeing Richard Jenkins in there because he's sort of come into his own in his twilight years. He's had spotlight, he's had shape of water, he's had cabin in the woods. So I'm very interested to see what he does in this. Yeah. And it's looking pretty good. 
I think you, you missed Step Brothers out there, but I'll let that one pass. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't. I, I can't not agree with the, the Richard Jenkins say. I think he, he's an actor who, like again, it's like John C. Riley and everything he's in, regardless of genre tone, always puts a really stellar performance in. He, even with these sort of small character moments, just I don't know how he does it. He just stands out the crowd in anything he does. I, I, I can't highlight him enough. It's difficult to follow on from you, Carsey, because. I, I don't feel I don't feel as, as strongly about it, but but I, I, again I wouldn't be able to disagree with anything you said. Um, the big thing here is that this is a film that is purely on hype. Um, I haven't watched the trailer for it, and I think that's one thing that sort of threw me for the first like forty minutes of the film. Uh, not sort of having any context of what this was about was was rather difficult for me for to, to gel with it. And um, I think the reason why is obviously because it because of its tone and sense of humour, which again comes into its own. It's just very difficult to sort of, well, for me personally, to, to find that accessible for the first, I don't know, let's say first quarter of it. To, to describe this film, it feels like Jim Jarmusch meets West, the early works of Wes Anderson and this melding. And I, and I think, I, I said in my review, I don't know if, the, don't quote me on it, but I did say it's sort of a melding of two filmmakers, but this undoubtedly feels like a Miranda July film. And that's the biggest praise I can give this. I don't think you'll see a film like Kijalina this year it's so quintessentially itself and if that makes sense um it, it's so difficult to sort of find a comparison to it because there's nothing really that touches upon it um it's a film that sort of works really well with its tone there's actually a, a shit ton of stuff in here that the film slowly and surely unpacks a lot of comments about sort of uh, emotional blackmail abuse if not um coming of age, finding sexuality is one of it. I mean, I've seen a lot of people add this into their, their you know, list of LGBTQ plus cinema, which was surprising for me because I didn't, obviously having no idea about what the actual film was about. When the film was opening, I found that slightly, I was just waiting for something to, to happen. And, and, and undoubtedly there's a, there's a theme of that, which I think is, is sort of really well done. It's very slow and, and sort of really sort of quite poignant and compelling and how, how it's sort of constructed is it doesn't bring any sort of self to it. It's there in the background and there's, there's definitely a, a conversation the film has on it. And I think it's really well done with its final scene, which again, from Miranda July, just feels like where the camera just, you know, leaves these two finally in peace, I think was really, really touching. But overall, uh, this is a film that really, really surprised me. I can't say that I didn't really, really enjoy this um, again, I don't have any sort of wider context of Miranda July's work, and this was my first opening. And uh, I, again, like you said, Kazan, I really, really loved this. Uh, there's a lot going, like I said, there's a lot going on here. It's, it's difficult to unpack everything. And I think the film, for the most part, I said 90%, comes away with having to having explored, raised quite a few you know, conversations on, 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 on subjects. But regarding the performances... Gina Rodriguez is a strange one for me because I haven't seen her in anything. And I know that she gets a lot of shit online for stuff she she, she may or may not have said. And I'll, I'll leave that because I, I, I don't want to sort of have that, you know, encouraging me on my thoughts at all. But here I, I was, again, she's in school. But, so that's the, that, that's my added context. Um, but I thought she was very good here. She doesn't have a lot to work with. She's almost like this third party that comes in. And um, it's difficult to sort of assess that when you, when you have such you have three very interesting, obscure and sort of charismatic in their very own individual way. And then you have a third party that's normal come in and then not separate this group, but infiltrate it and then bring sort of harmony and humanity to it towards. It's very difficult. Again, the film plays with a certain structure that I don't think in, 
I don't think for the long run it actually helps, but it's it's interesting nevertheless. I don't think it's an issue that will take you away from anything. I think that's just getting very niche. But I thought Jenna Rodriguez was 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 good in this film. I mean, I haven't seen like I said, I haven't seen a lot of it. So this is again one of the first few things I've seen, and she has like a, a very charismatic performance. She's very good with with humor, but when she wants to turn the tables and and, and really go for the emotive responses, it, she's def she's definitely there. And again, that final scene is fucking beautiful it's probably one of, the, one of the best final shots of of this year no doubt the one thing i think everyone's going to say though but i haven't seen none of it is that evan rachel wood here to say that she is unrecognizable would be an understatement i didn't actually know it was her uh, i didn't and, and and this is if for our, our american viewers or international viewers this is going to be a, a sort of a reference that won't really uh, make sense but i hope you and will indulge me I felt she gave a very similar performance to something I would have seen in Kevin and Perry Go Large. I felt that she was, she was, yeah, yeah, if you yeah, Google it, yes. Cass, and you, yeah, she, she's so, it's it's like stoner, teenage character, and it, it, it but it's unrecognisable. She she feels like she's a foot shorter. She feels like, it just doesn't feel like Evan Mitchell would and how she's a powerhouse in Westworld and how she was in 13, which again is going back like almost 15, 16, 17 years ago. But this is a, this is such a distinctive performance that it's very difficult for sort of to, to, to attach yourself to it and believe it. Cause you, you know, you see it as such a powerful, um, again, as a, a, in, in Westworld. So this was a very strange thing as an audience to witness, but she, uh, she just rides with this performance in such a strange way. I mean, it's a character built, Almost, I think again, not to go back on myself, but it's a, it's a film that touches on a lot of stuff, and it's a film that 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 does begin a topic of discussion on abuse, not not necessarily physical or, or sexual, but but emotional and gaslighting and blackmail, and it's sort of this theme that doesn't really get touched upon in cinema a lot. You a lot of cinema when it when it touches on abuse is has to be on the nose. It's very physical. This is an interesting film of how it dives into that emotional. Uh, blackmail and, and how these parents do sort of neglect their daughter and then have her be a, a third party to to swindle these these um, people and she 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 has a sort of this second wind of thinking you know she be, she begins to grow and have it as a as a conscience there is a moment where she thinks that she's died in an earthquake because of her parents have put this sort of idea in her mindset and how she sort of leaves this bathroom stall there's like a a, a character that enters that scene and a character that leaves but she's like how she constructs that. And again, it, this could easily be in something like I am Sam Sean Penn level where it's like you went for something, you miss the margin quite a lot. And then it goes into wider culture of being like, you know, made fun of in like the likes of Tropic Thunder and stuff. Um, and I think a lot of people come away with that sort of mentality of like, oh, wow, she goes too far or, you know, it's just a character that's it's so difficult to relate to. But I think a lot of people out there will. I definitely could see sort of, you know, how that character is constructed and, and the result of the abuse. And again, I think that's that's the aspect of I really like about Kajillian Ewa, Miranda July. We talk about narrative and we talk about tone and stuff, and we're going to touch upon it next in Netflix's Oscar Academy Award winning Enola Holmes. Um, but this is a film that really does judge tone uh, and, and narrative and, and depth and a really wonderful birth of, you know, honesty as well as, not necessarily projecting the worst of life, but projecting in a way that even even if you know this is abuse, it, it is sort of idealized in a way that that's not always in the way that it's you know someone's getting you know 
beating up in, in a room or someone is getting sexually abused. It, it, I mean, again, not to sort of negate that those things are, are not traumatic. They are. And Hollywood like to sort of use those tropes as, as in, in a way that doesn't give it depth. It just uses a moment to craft character depth, which I think is very dishonest in a lot, a lot of sort of moments. Um, I think Violation at TIFF this year uh, does a really good, interesting way of how to show um, the effects of like sexual assault. And I think film filmmakers are sort of getting their idea about not, you know, like when you see Last Last House on the Left, it's not how you do sexual abuse here. And again, not it's not sexual abuse, don't get me wrong. I don't, probably need to stop saying that, but it's it's a film that does sort of touch upon abuse in the long run of how how mentally de deteriorating and degrading it is for a character who is having at the age of like you said twenty six, having to dress up in a school uniform so that you know she can go around and 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 steal stuff and and sort of get coupons for free. I think this will have a, I think this will have a second wind. They really do. It's a shame that this is a film. I mean, we spoke about Ava getting lost in the COVID stuff. I mean, this is this is this has come out before internationally. It's only getting its release. I think it's UK premiere at LFF London Film Festival, which is again is so late on. I think the bus has already left the uh, the depot. But I hope that this is a this is not just like the oh it's a quintessential quirky film by Amanda July. I hope it does get the justice it deserves of how it does tackle abuse. And, and it's a film that, that, that sets its sights on, on uh, not physical, but psychological. And, and again, not to sum up my thoughts here, I'm going to have to. I think that's a film that very rarely does that. And this is a, a, a great sort of um, indication of like Miranda July understands that there's, there's, you can mould comedy and, and quirkiness, but you can have a really hard hitting undercurrent there. And again, this is a wonderful sort of depiction. And again, the wonderful is probably like lack of a poor word, but I think it's a very provocative but compelling way of doing it. Yeah, as far as how it touches on uh, abuse, it reminds me a lot of Briggs C. Bear, and I don't know if either of you have seen it, but that's a film that also handles this in a really subtle and nuanced manner. It takes abuse and it doesn't, like, I really appreciate what Jack said about how they kind of subtly handle it, um, but not just with, like, how they show the abuse, but also how the characters are affected by the abuse. This isn't, you know, a character who is necessarily outright, you know, traumatized per se by their abuse, but it shows on how, you know, in the small, just everyday life, those ghosts can haunt this character in a very, very compelling matter. I think the biggest thing that frustrates me about this film is simply just how it's being released. And Jack, you also mentioned on this, it's out in theaters in the United States and it made $215,000. And just, I don't think this film is going to find, I know it's coming out on VOD, I think middle of October. I really don't see this film picking up steam, which frustrates the ever like living hell out of me. This is the film, like if A24 would have picked this up and gave it a proper release in like December, which granted A24 doesn't do that for their, well, this is a this is a white cast, so they might actually do it for this one. But if they gave this a proper like December release, this would have been a film that everyone talked about as being like, wow, one of the best of the year, Miranda July, like what an incredible voice to hear. And sadly, I don't think this is going to do the cast credit. I don't think the release is going to give the director the credit that they should have. And just this entire film, this film could have been something huge. And sadly, it's just been thrown into like this sea of sh like just endless shit at this point and I don't think that this film is going to find the audience I really hope I'm proven wrong because I think this is something spectacular I just the release strategy for this film frustrates me greatly just just to echo on that I also have the same sentiments here because this could go one of two ways like you said 
this will either get picked up after LFF and go on Mubi in the UK, and it'll it'll have a it'll have a good life on there because Mubi's like growing it, it, its filmography on there. And it's doing some interesting stuff with the cinema releases. Uh, if we can ever go back to it, um, my, my issue here is that again, like you said, I feel this is going to be on quirky movies on the category of Netflix. I just feel like it's destined for that, which is such a disservice. As again, not to quote you, Cassie, you did a wonderful job, but I think again, it is such a disservice to the actual crew here because this is this is a film that. Miranda Jewell is not a household name, but th- this is this shows the, the, the exact caliber. And I believe this is a third film. I might be wrong. It, it, it's, a, it's an infancy of a filmography. I know she's done quite a, few, a, a couple, but that's so. This is the third film. You know, you're talking about Royal Tenenbaums level for um, you know from Wes Anderson. And to be honest, they're at the same level. I I, I adore Royal Tenenbaums. I, I adore Wes Anderson. Um, after this, Steve Zissou and Darjeeling Limited. I, I can I can give or take that. After that, I'm done. But I think this is a filmmaker now that is a that just and due deserved aspect of deserving sort of not only high quality uh, standards of you know production and not to say that this isn't but I mean again she, she should be able to do what she wants but also again this is a cast that Evan I just Evan Rachel Wood here it, it has to almost be to be seen to be believed if you if you if you put the Westworld character in this and again it's like well Jack that's how fucking acting works. Like, you know, like, don't, I, don't, I know I'm going to patronise, but just, just go with me. I still think that this is such a career-turning performance for Evan Rachel Wood because she's an actress that is in, arguably, the biggest TV show currently in production in, in the world, you could say. Um, I know probably people out there would, would, would differ, but I still think Westworld on HBO is a massive platform. If, if you showed an audience member of that, that Evan Rachel Wood is in Kajillion Air, I don't think they would actually believe you until they saw it. And it's a film that the actress actually hides a bit behind this character. And I think it's it's what, I don't want to compare the two because there's, there's sort of like a, a, a mismatch of, of like, you know, I, like I said, I don't want to, com- I'm going to say that his name, but I don't want to compare the two because obviously they're both in a different battle against, um, you know, what 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 they're going through in, in the public eye. But it, it's what Johnny Depp used to do. Johnny Depp used to, yes, he used to put cakes and cakes and makeup on, but you also used to believe that character, like Edward Scissorhands. I think nobody comes away from that and goes, oh, that's, I, well, maybe not, I don't know. But for me personally, I see that a character first, performance second. And I think the, the one thing that what happened with Depp is that he get he got lost in that and doing it with everything. And I think sometimes when you have Johnny Depp in a film, like you do in, you know, The Rum Diary or you, you have in, you know, the likes of The Tourist, is that that's Johnny Depp. I don't think there's a problem with that. But when you, you sort of cater your career on hiding behind it, um, I think sort of you lose the idea of, you know, to build individual characters, let's say. But I think Evan Rachel Wood here does what what Johnny Depp used to do in the fact that that she 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 is secondary to this character, uh, this character who has a, like a really funny name as well. Let me just find it because sometimes I've wrote, I've, I've done it in my review and I, I generally couldn't I couldn't imagine, I, I can't remember what her name is anyway. Regardless, but it I, again to get to the point. I think it also shows the maturity of Evan Rachel Wood now, where she doesn't actually have to do this. If you think about it, she could actually just counter chips on the Westworld, get a Marvel gig, call it a day, and then just do, you know, big block blockbuster stuff. She's a household name. I think it's undeniable to say that she is. She's also recognized within the, the Oscar category anyway, with with the with performance in 13. It's not like she's not a critically an actress, don't get me wrong. But I think with this, it's sort of a second win for the for the actress of of, of just trying to show the audience that, yeah, I can still do this. Nobody sort of 
nobody questioned my ability. And I think it's a great performance, not only to the people that sort of see her purely as that Westworld performance, but I think this is here that she's she can just hide, get lost within a character, within a role, within a performance. And I think as much as I think Miranda July should be served up as, as something special, I still think that this is just like, I love that casual reminder was like, yeah, I can do this. It's like, I don't want to, I think it's very similar to someone like James McAvoy. It's like people put him second wind to everybody, but then he comes out with split and goes, yeah, I can do this. Like, this is nothing. Like, come on, I can, I can do this in my sleep. And again, you, he's like, oh, it's, it's, it's Charles Xavier. It's like, well, no, it's a fucking character. Calm down. Like, it's not real, you know? And I think, I think Bruce Willis showed that with Glass as well. And I think in the trailers, it goes to that. But Bruce Willis is doing B-movie after B-movie. And it's just like, Bruce, come on, man. You, oh, come on now. Like, I know, like, come on, like, let's get a performance here. And every so often, like, Moonrise Kingdom, he shows glimmers and, like, little bits of hope. And then he just treasure trove of shit. And I think with Glass, it's like that wink and nudge to the camera's like, yeah, pay me and I'll do the job. And I'll get it done. And I think Pesci's, a, De Niro's another one. And I, I, that's sort of a running thing. I'm choosing old white men because I think they get lost in the hierarchy of performance where they just get paid a shit ton of money and then run up to set. Depp is another one. But I think with Evan Rachel Wood, there's definitely a love and a passion for crafting character. And I think behind the scenes here, but it's, I bet it was, a, again, I'm not going, I'm going fucking on and on here, I apologise. But as we said about the abuse angle, it's, it's there in the background, it's there, there's a lot of depth to it, but the film never sort of, goes solely on that to sort of divulge on it's for the audience to work it out to see that and that's what I also appreciate about because it's not something that's it's a celebration of like getting out of that cult mentality you know it's a celebration of like you know take the blindfold off and see the world and there again like I said there's a gas station scene where that literally happens I think generally it's a sort of a a wonderful thing for July that she doesn't have to sort of you know, thematically say it, she she actually goes the, accept, the, the exception and, and, and literally shows it, which often they're not, I don't like, but that well, that scene's handled so well within the sort of the, the eyes and prism of comedy that, again, it just reinforces how good she is with tone and genre. But again, just go back to Evan Rachel Wood. I bet this was so fun to make. It just like, it just gleams in the eye when, when I think about this film and how wonderful that scene would have been to, to, to shoot with the gas station. But I also think that, I, I, especially the final scene that I cannot say enough of, that's generally just like so inspiring, so like just seriously poignant and really captivating to behold. But um, I also think that this is a film that's not afraid to really pull on the heartstrings. There's a lot of comedy and there's a lot of silly comedy. And again, there's a lot of comments on bigger thematic uh, issues and problems within within society. But there's, there's, there's really dark moments in this film there's something happens between this family. I don't want to say it because it's spoilers. And I think it should be seen as well where they never give her a birthday. They never buy her presents. And one day they do and they leave one out and they meet her at a restaurant, but they buy, they buy her like all these presents that she, she would have got at that age. And I felt like, Oh wow, that's, that's so poignant. You know? I, I, it would just, it, it just intoxicates you into the, into the film. And you, you do get sort of disbelieved into sort of this mentality where you get roped into this abuse cycle as well as the character and I found myself having to sort of reframe my, my, my reframe myself from actually watching the thing on screen because it was like oh shit like I caught what they were doing straight away and that, that just shows such a level of, of, of maturity in someone's writing 
and the tone and the and the weight of the of the image on screen of how she enraptures this audience in the same mentality as Evan Rachel Woods, where you know it's almost like gaslighting, isn't it? It's the fact of that you get all this shit done to you, and and at the end of the day, when you voice a big enough concern, you then get the apology. But it, it almost comes off in the end as a justification, and within the context of the film, it goes down a very similar route that it just sort of is heartbreaking to behold. But it's just there's this multiple scenes here where I'm just left like, wow, like July is, is honestly, she's, she's so one to watch. She's not only good behind the camera, but I swear to God, the writing here is exceptional. And it's, it's, it's going to get put in that quirky bin. And, and yeah, maybe if it finds a life there, who knows, it finds a life. I don't want to be the one that, you know, a purist, you have to watch this with this, you know, ideology. I hope it doesn't get into the quirky bin and stays on Netflix. But I just I do wish that people see this and just get blown away like we were. I really do. No, you mentioned that ending and how stunning. I mean, it was for you, and I fully echo that because I mean, even your points about the gifts right now, like how the entire ending sequence—not just final scene, but the sequence—and how you think you know the weight of some things only for them to be recontextualized. Like, I think the ending and just overall screenplay of this film is the like possibly best screenplay of the year from everything I've seen, at least for original, at least definitely. It's just genius. I mean, everything carries such a weight and just even thinking back on it, like I almost get excited as someone who watches so many films to think like, wow, that has so many layers to it. And just, I feel like on rewatches, everything is gonna be like just enhanced. I think this is a genius screenplay. Did you say Carson, it's getting mixed reviews as well? Yeah, I know. Well, especially out of Sundance, it got a lot of mixed reviews. Um, people are, it, it seems like the general sense is like out of five, it's about like a 3.5 for a lot of people, but there's quite a few people who went much lower than that, who just did not vibe with it, which I get to a point, like this is a very stylized, like comedy. You're, it's very easy just to not click with this film, especially towards the beginning where it is more of the comedy before it finds its emotional weight. Um, but I'm genuinely surprised that people are not like just way up there with this film but yeah it is what I, it is yeah i mean to echo but i think I, I was in probably the same um sort of a, a idea of perhaps some of these critics were but i think the first 30 minutes if you've got no prior idea and overall sort of establishment of what's going on of you haven't seen a Miranda july film before it is a very difficult film to find accessible because it, it, it's it's laid in a way right from the get-go it, it's like this is this is kajillionaire it doesn't feel like there's a feeder to it. There's no like, uh, let's say, for argument's sake, there isn't sort of this prologue to, for a 10, 15 minute before it gets into its act structure where you're allowed a little bit of depth. You, you're allowed to see the craft on offer, but you're also you're allowed to see a little bit of the thematic um, ideology that's going into the film, um, which granted are in there, but to the point of how how niche and obscure and quirky this actually is. And that's not, I'm not trying to sort of patronise this film at all. I think... I think you would, you would, you'd find it argued to sort of identify those those descriptions for this film. I think it would be hard to go against. But for me as well, the first 25 minutes were just very, very shaky to the fact of where nothing bad was was on screen per se. That I think I, I undoubtedly got with it within that first act um, issues. But it is a film that's very inaccessible just purely because if you haven't got an idea of what this is going to be about... I feel like the film sets it up as one thing, introduces a third party and goes down a very different avenue. But again, 
I think that's what would be more appreciative on a, on a second watch. I think that I, just speaking to you now, Cass, and I think I've got sort of like a, a second love for it, just speaking about it, which I'm probably going to go back through my review and highlight a few more things that I've, I've missed in having this conversation. But I think even more so on a second watch, I think this will be fabulous. I think it'll probably be elevated as well. I think there'll be some more subtle nuance regarding that first act that I didn't pick up on because I was sort of, sort of trying to find my way into the maze. But no, Kajillionaire for me, maybe it's too much to talk about like critical acclaim, but undoubtedly deserves something. I think even if it, I just, regardless of critical acclaim, which I don't think it'll do, it won't happen anyway, because I think, I don't think focus features will put this forward. But I would like to say is I just hope this gets a home at the end of the day, regardless of like norms, you know, what whatever happens, so be it. But I just hope that this gets a home to begin with, you know? It, it feels like a project um, that Amazon Prime would pick up on and sort of send it out as one of their originals. I can see that. Yeah. Do we do we have clarification on what is actually happening with it released over here? Because it hasn't actually released in cinemas, if I'm wrong. I think it's going straight to VOD in the UK. I think That's it's just such a, it's such a it, shame. It is. It um, does scream Amazon Prime, doesn't it? It does scream. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, it'll, maybe, I don't know what the interface on Amazon Prime is. Netflix is just a clusterfuck. You know, <laughs> it actually took me ages to find Devil all the time on that website. And it has oh, like it's... three, it, it's, it's a nightmare, it really is. Yeah. So maybe Amazon Prime will take it. I, I think movie would probably be best just because yeah. of the actual nicheness to it. But um, I'm just so surprised it's taken this long. I mean, it's having its, 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 its UK premiere in October. I don't know what the decision is behind that. There must be some decision if it's been prolonged for so long. Because if, sure, yeah. if they're going to if they're going to VOD it, wouldn't they have just done that inevitably at the beginning anyway? Just dump it. Yeah. So there must be some idea of what they're going to go forward with. Maybe there is a a comment. October is the time where you do sort of release around that period to get some acclaim. So maybe they have got a plan. Maybe we will speak about this a little bit more in a few weeks. I don't know. Hopefully we will do, because at this moment in time, there isn't really anything comparable to this. And it hasn't been all year, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, just speaking from the Oscars with hair and makeup, I know they like to do like really bizarre choices like Suicide Squad. So if there's any category, it could sneak into that. And even if it gets on like a short list for that, that could result in other people seeing it and maybe it takes off. I mean, I can hope at least. Yeah, that, that is the thing, isn't it? It's going to look like it's going to be the smaller, uh, regardless, it's still an Oscar, don't get me wrong, but it feels like it's going to be the smaller, more, you know, filmmaking-based uh, rewards. Um, I'm just looking at it now, and to be honest, you could see Deborah Wing, you could see Richard Jenkins getting something out of here. I think Evan Rachel would. It'd be sort of criminal not to have that conversation. I mean, this is actually produced by Plan, Plan B as well, which is a Brad Pitt Productions. And, you know... The, they have had quite a few notorious few things. I mean, you look at, you know, the big show, which also got nommed on plan B, 12 years a slave, which got plan B's norm as well. Um, so it's not sort of unquestionable to say that this shouldn't be in the same realm. If plan B do push it with focus features, you know, I don't know, but you've got Megan Ellison who produces this as well, which is, I believe she's the producer of Annapurna as well. So this has got actually a lot of backing behind it. So, so maybe... Maybe this isn't. Maybe this isn't actually too ridiculous to actually bring that out. Jennifer Johnson with costumes, like you said, that's definitely something you get nommed. 
And ultimately, like, I look to the bad box office as being like, oh, that's disappointing for it. If every film gets a bad box office, like, report by now and then, like, that's not necessarily going to be a mark against the film as much as it would appear normally. So I think that's also just going to be, like, because I'm concerned that means people are not seeing the film. That means that it's just, like, generally you bad box office bombs don't necessarily, like, you know, get in. But if the theatrical market is just not going to be there by the time we get to the Oscars, you know, who's to say how much of an impact that really has on it. So I think, again, as I said before about we talk about this in a few weeks, I think it'll be interesting to see what the ramifications are after LFF. If it gets any plaudits there, I think that will be the big one. Maybe it'll take a second, like I said, a second wind up regarding that and then we will go forward. But that'll be the big interesting part because I can definitely see it getting a lot of love here. Um, LFF got a stacked schedule and obviously Nomadland has, has come out and it's getting rave reviews. Ammonite's also going to blow up. There's, no one's going to talk about that. There's also the Kevin Firth Stanley Tucci film that's also going to blow up. There's a lot here that, that that looks, you know, times there, which, are, which I've just watched as well for New, New York. That's definitely something that needs to be touched upon. That, that film's um, an incredible piece of work. So there's a lot with London that, that's still yet to sort of have a, have a have its moment my hope is that and i don't want to sort of be detrimental to, to chloe jaw or anything like that I, I i'm not here for that i'm not gonna be like oh i'm going you know pit to to uh, female filmmakers against them but i just hope that maybe nomadland it, it gets the reception it deserves but there's then the conversation for the laws that get left behind because i feel and i know it's i don't want to sort of speak out of turn here but i feel that film is sort of lit up its own little hysteria let's say in a, you know and the connotation of that word obviously in a good way um hopefully then that leaves a little bit of room to talk about Kajillionaire because I'm just looking at what's at London and to be honest you have got like your five films you've got a lot of Steve McQueen things but then they've just renounced One Night in Miami with G- Regina King they've asked the Possessor the Cronenberg kid film that's what I call him so, you know, I, I don't know. Hopefully it will get a, a second wind and I really fucking hope it does because it's a film that's, it's so weird and wacky and quirky, but how it balances everything is a fucking masterclass. It really is. Last but certainly not least, let's talk about Netflix's popular spin-off entry into the Sherlock Holmes series, Enola Holmes, starring Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill. <laughs> Caricature. Perhaps best if Wirecroft doesn't see it. Do you intend to stay up there? I was hoping for some privacy. You know, last I remember of you, you were quite a timid little thing. You had a pine cone wrapped in wool. Dragged it with you wherever you went. Calling it Dash. Someone told you that Queen Victoria had a cavalier King Charles Spaniel called Dash. And you decided you wanted the same. While searching for a missing mother... Intrepid teen Enola Holmes uses her sleuthing skills to outsmart Big Brother Sherlock and help a runaway lord. Ewan, uh, I know you've been boosting to get this one oh, uh, it's... talked about, so please carry carry this away. <laughs> it's uh, like I don't think anybody expected much from this. It's you know, it's a Netflix film. It's where dreams go to die. So it's you know, Harry Bradbury's very first. It's his directorial debut. He's coming out punching with an adaptation of, you know, a Sherlock Holmes spin-off with Enola Holmes. It, it's, you know, credit where it's due. It's a big task to take on when you're working with, you know, Millie Bobby Brown, Henry Cavill, Sam Claflin. You've got Helena Bonham Carter in there as well for a bit. It, it just doesn't come together. And I'm not entirely sure why. I think a lot of it for me was the little details 
the fourth wall breaks, the sort of squeaky clean, polished London aesthetic that sort of, it, it's a different sort of London that we've seen. Now, granted, it's because it's that, you know, it's not exactly meant to be gritty, hard, harsh, hitting. You know, it's meant to be an old home solving where's her mother gone. But it, it would have been nice to see at least something that's a bit darker, a bit grittier, or at least just a bit, you know, grim. Because it's Victorian era London. It wasn't exactly, you know, everyone's out having a laugh. But, you know, I think there's a lot of issues with it. And I would just like to say that, you know, Millie Bobby Brown as a lead, fantastic. I think considering that's, uh, aside from Stranger Things, and I think she was in, she's going to be in Kong Godzilla whenever that comes out. Um, as a lead role, very good. She's she's definitely capable of that. Um, Henry Cavill feels a bit wasted as Sherlock Holmes. He, he crops up every now and then to sort of provide a plot point or to... Uh, give it a bit of a nudge in the right direction and that's him done. He's off out with uh, Sam Claflin doing whatever else. A, a lot of people are going to enjoy this one just because it's sort of light. It's a fluffy bit of entertainment. You know, we, me and my flatmates, we ordered pizza. We had a nice sit down, just sort of, you know, a nice relaxing film. And it's just, if it weren't for these small little details, like like the fourth wall bricks, which are pretty consistent, and a lot a lot of the time it's very head on, like the opening of the film straight away, Millie Bobby Brown's face in the camera, she's saying, "This is my story. This is what happens." If it weren't for sort of those little things that started to add up and really start to grate on me, I think this could have been fine. I think it could have been a harmless, you know, film that I mean, nobody's going to be talking about this a few months from now. It's like, oh, do you remember? Do you remember Enola Holmes? That was fantastic. It's it's it is what it is. It it'll have its audience, but um, it's sort of a half baked mystery flick with a very good cast. I will just start off by saying I'm not the target demographic, so keep that in mind for this film. Uh, did not like this movie at all. You know, this is Netflix has been on a rough trend recently, and this just really continues it. First on the positive, you know, Millie Bobby Brown good actor, good on her getting a producing credit here. You know, that's good for her, you know, building a career off Stranger Things. I think she's pretty competent. Uh, the costume design and like production design, I thought was pretty fine. Um, other than that, no, this movie didn't do it for me. I was genuinely surprised that Kajillionaire was getting mixed reviews. I'm even more surprised so many people are legitimately like loving this film. I've been listening to other podcasts and stuff and people are really getting behind it. Depending how you want to look at this movie, it is a mystery that didn't captivate me. And it's a comedy that didn't really make me laugh even once, I think. Um, the comedy is ex like exceptionally horrible here. The fourth wall breaks and Millie Bobby Brown's character, just complete lack of direction. They try to make this like a serious period piece, but then also like, oh, you're gonna have these little like moments of charisma and energy as like a teenager and it's gonna be funny and it just falls completely out of place. I genuinely think the editing in this movie is abysmal. I'm shocked this wasn't originally a Netflix film because honestly, the beginning portion reminded me so much of The Kissing Booth, both one and two, with how rapid and just completely chaotic the editing was, jumping around with such like going so fast that it completely fails to leave an impact on you. Uh, the editing slows down, luckily. It does get better overall than The Kissing Booths, one, two, and probably three. Um, which is coming next year. I want to remind everyone it is on the horizon. They filmed it and it's being edited. Uh, cannot wait. But it is generally better than that. But this feels like a shitty Netflix film in every way. Like I'm shocked this was going to be released theatrically and it was just picked up by Netflix. It was painful to get through if I'm being honest. Like better than Ava, sure. 
but genuinely like again not the target demographic so take my word as you want but was not a fan of this one i can definitely agree with it's better than ever i mean i might this might be controversial i think i'm slightly more optimistic than both of you put together um th- there, there is there's a lot of drawbacks here and the first thing i want to mention is that again just to talk about the the producing credit for for a, for a young actress at the age of like 15 or 16 that's quite monumental. Regardless, I think the Stranger Things pun, ultimately, it may look like Millie Bobby Brown's got one over Warner Brothers, but I think Warner Brothers, are, I know what they're doing here, of having her um, have these credentials of bringing sort of another new age generation to, to watching films, don't get me wrong. Like Ewan said, this is her second role within a cinematic medium. First is Godzilla, you know, King of the Monsters, and then it's this, and then it's Kong. So it's an interesting film to sort of take in and look at her, not as a supporter, but as a lead. And like you and said, and as you, you said, Casa, she's actually quite fabulous here. Um, I think she works with tone really well, as with Stranger Things. She's quite one note in that, but it's it's like appropriate regarding that character. And I've said this quite a lot, is that I think the issue with working in television is that you ultimately you stagnate. And, and with Stranger Things, I think... It's, it's taken three seasons to then show Nat- Natalie Dyer and then it's shown, you know, Joe Kerry have, and Finn Wolfhard, I mean, he's, he's probably the one to break out with at first, but to have legs. And I think a lot of them won't get past that because ultimately these young actors and actresses really do need to work with different people to have a diversified sort of creative, emotional response to material. It's interesting that Millie Bobby Brown's gone bang straight into the uh, blockbuster I wouldn't have felt that that would have been appropriate for her and her talents because out of everybody there, I think she's got the best emotive response to material. That's not to say any any other co-performer in Stranger Things is poor per se, but she's undoubtedly the, the, the anonymous there and, and, and her audition tape is like infamously incredible. I do want to mention not to just shit on her at all, but we have to mention that she has actually got a first look deal with Warner Brothers. This is one of them. It wasn't picked up. It was sold. Whatever that does with her deal, I don't think that should be detrimental to what she can create. You know, this this is a five picture deal with Warner Brothers. She's made three of them. One of them was sold to Netflix because it wasn't good enough. Perhaps I don't know. The end result, I think, could probably speak for yourself, regardless if you like this or not. But overall, I think this is at least it's competently made. This is not a shit fest like the, the kissing booth, I must admit, but there are drawbacks here. And, and one of them is that I feel that this film has an identity crisis throughout, but not in the way of, of the fourth wall break. I didn't even mention that in my, my letterboxing because it was just so inconspicuously uninteresting and sort of never really had a point to me. It was just there, it blended in. I didn't really see, I think let's just, I didn't think it bothered me either way it was in in here or not. Again, it's sort of cringeworthy with that flea bag, flea bag mentality that flea bag energy that, uh, you know, Phoebe uh, Bridge-Walters has, has put forward as ironically sort of killed it off in, 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 a, in a, and again, in like revitalization, revitalization of it, uh, which is not this film's fault, don't get me wrong, but it just felt sort of weird to have in this, you know, the, the fourth wall break just didn't feel within the, the regards to these characters, it just felt slightly out of place. I, they could have played with it like Fleabag does, but to be honest, I just don't think it was in any way interesting. But just regarding the uh, the, the identity crisis, I mean, there is so much plot here that when I, when I press play on Netflix, which I have cold shivers thinking about every time I do, is that when two zero two twelve came up, I had a fucking heart attack almost. Like I had flutters. 
why this is 122 minutes long, I, I, nobody on planet Earth can convince me why. It's way excessively too long. And the problem is, is that there's nothing out here that's, that's has, who has the audacity to cut it out. It's just so overcooked and overstuffed with material that's A, excessive, B, slightly boring, and C, doesn't feel like it's like, it feels adequated to everything, or antiquated, should I say. It just, it's like a mismatch of 21st century filmmaking within this sort of context of like trying to highlight the injustices of women during this period, like the suffragette period, which I think is, a, is what, what one attribute of the film, which I think works really well. I like the fact that this film does touch upon the fact of like, you know, within, within you know, the, this era of, of Sherlock Holmes, you have Mycroft, you have Sherlock, and that's basically it. Again, this is an unofficial spin-off. It's not canon. But I appreciate the fact that they have a mother here that isn't afraid to get her hands dirty, what she believes in. She's not just a housemaid that sits at home and cooks. I like the fact that everybody here has an identity. And the fact that the film reinforces that Millie, Bro Millie Bobby Brown's Anola has to have an identity is something I was looking forward to. But the end of it all, I can't really tell you what identity she has. She just ultimately becomes a detective like a brother. And I just thought to myself, there was something that you really could have done there. Like she could have had the mixture of both Mycroft and, and Sherlock and had that, that, that really fighting mentality from a mother. And they could have, she could have really have had that, that melding of, of fighting for injustice. And ultimately all she does is just save someone to vote. And it's like, there's, this, there's all, and again, there's an underlining again of politics here, which is in a really interesting scene with Henry Cavill which it just didn't feel like his place to be in this at all. It just, again, there's two rather big stars in here that pop up here and there. And again, it's interesting for them to work within this, you know, film. But in the long run, I don't think it helps either actor with their performances. It's just them looking quite smart in suits. And Sam Claflin plays arguably the biggest prick you'll see all year. I mean, it was just excruciatingly difficult to watch he was just an arsehole at every turn and again that is the character don't get me wrong but when you're watching a young girl finding herself and, and you're watching Millie, Millie Bob Brown be really charismatic I feel every time it went back to that 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 duo and, and these opposing ideologies it just didn't know what to say it just prevent presented him as a prick and presented Sherlock rather cold with a sense of humor which obviously this film's getting sued for which I found absolutely hilarious I mean, I suppose we'll, we'll touch upon that soon. But again, I just think it's like, there's just so much here that it just drowns out what the film needs to be and should be about, which is Anola. And it just crasps, crasps itself into this conspiracy of, and gets larger and larger. And as, as much as it sort of elevates itself to go uh, with more layers, more layers, it just forgets what its foundation is, which is this young girl that's finding herself realising that, you know, she's in London, she's understanding that, the, the class system, she's understanding that because of her gender, she'll be oppressed. Like, but it just feels like it's concurrently underneath everything. And, and I think that's the problem with the Jack Thorne screenplay. And I know that George Lewis fucking hates Jack Thorne's work. And I think he's incensed by it with, with this. And I just don't think Thorne really does a, a service to this, this character in this era. I do want to mention one thing, and I know it gets a lot of people sort of like incensed, but I think it's just something I need to, to pick up on. I don't want to be this like woke warrior or anything like that, but I, th I think it needs to be said. The problem with these films is that it presents um, a, an oppressed character within a world 
Um, and I think it strives towards that. There's nothing, I don't have any issue with that at all. In fact, I'm, I'm in favour of it. If you've listened to my review, if you've read my review, listen to me here. I don't think you would argue against me. The one thing that really pisses me off about these films is that it does a gloss over London. And I, not to get political like that, but if, 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 if me and Ewan were her age during that time frame, we'd be in a fucking mill at 11 years old and we'd die at 25. And then you've got this girl who has had every single like chance of like, she's, her mom just gives her a stack of money and she blows it on everything. And it's like, there's just one scene where she takes, she, 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 she buys someone's clothes to, to hide. And then a scene later, there's a sort of comment like, we'll have to fire him. She says, no, please don't, please don't. I don't think there's a conscience, there's not a conscious mentality of actually having that discussion. And if, if you're poor, like you ultimately, you, this, this world is horrific. And because all these people have money and they can gallivant around London and they can get a stagecoach or they can get a fucking train here, here, there and everywhere. I just find that it's very tone deaf. And I think we're at that time now. And again, not to echo you, Cassie, but this is this is quite obviously a target audience here. No one wants to see fucking a Mike Lee's Peter Lou, you know, with with Millie Bobby Brown in the Netflix film. I would I appreciate that. But the fact is that if there's a conscious effort to talk about the suffragettes and feminism, I think that there should be a bigger world here to discuss a lot more issues. And the fact that it gets caught up in this family drama. I don't think you need Sherlock Holmes. I don't think you need microphone. Get them out, focus on the mother, focus on the daughter. I think it's a far more centralised film, a far more productive film at that. But it's just it's just so aggravating to realise that it's just like, it feels like tokenism in a way. And I, I don't want to sort of get drawn into this at all, but it feels like if we do this and showcase this, then we're okay. But the problem with that is that you can't just do a one-note idea of showcasing this you know era and sugarcoating it it's, to me it's just unacceptable now and the, the fact is if we weren't we're going to get into it this film's also made by a dude a man let's say so again that to me is just hollow tokenism you've got a, a, a feministic a, 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 well, cinematic icon it's trying to propose and it's reinforced all the time that Anola's really strong she is i mean the film also like makes like an in joke about her name, which I found was like, oh right, okay, that, that's interesting. But like, do we need to make mention of that? That would rather be quite a nice subtle indication through uh, like you know no verbal exposition. But the, the fact remains is that this is like it's just like a full bullshit. It's just I just don't I don't believe Hollywood or Netflix in the slightest when you've got a film about you know feministic ideals, a woman fighting, fighting, you know, oppression on all fronts, especially as a young girl in this film. And then you've got a film made by a man. I just, that's just doesn't really sort of rest with me very well, especially like, again, when you're doing a film like this and it doesn't showcase the harrowness of, of the situation. I think um, Amanda Iannucci's, uh, the, 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 you know, David Copperfield film does a really good idea of that because it showcases the beauty of the ideology of what London proposes itself to be, but it does, it is not afraid to show the, the working class, lower class idealistic of having to, having to survive. And it showcases that again through comedy, but it's a nice prism through comedy because there's layers and there's a nuance there. This film subtextually fails on every idealistic thing it wants to bring up. But again, let's just, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about, uh, you know, you know, subtext here because this is a film made purely as like this action adventure film and don't get me wrong i think it's it's quite refreshing but ultimately it's just a film that sort of 
it's, it's there's just there's so much here. There's just so much to behold, and it just goes on and on and on. And there's so much weight, so much depth that's just given to other people that just doesn't need to be there. And again, I just can't tell you what the answer is to the question in the film. This film, there's like a a, a monologue from Helena Bonham Carter and Ola Holmes where it's like, you'll have to find yourself one day. There'll be a moment where you'll you'll find yourself and know who you are. I'm sorry, but I don't think that film answered the question. Maybe I missed something. I don't know. I was glued to the screen. What can I say? But I just felt myself like questioning the fact of what does she actually learn here? What does she What does she learn? I, I, she's got. She, what at the end she has an absentee mother. Like what does that reinforce? Again, subtextual. What does that reinforce? I don't know. I I, I, just, I just think the film is is all over the place with its moral ideology, which which is again really strange because I think it has a really good topic to discuss: feminism, women's rights. It, it does like there's a com the conversation on white men in politics. They don't give a shit why because it doesn't affect them because they don't need change. It's an interesting woman, it's, and it comes from that those words come from a from a black woman, and and you know she's doing self defense classes for women upstairs, and she's got you know banned books about you know feminism, women in the workplace. There's it's all here, but it's just like it just. I just feel like it's so shallow and hollow, and I'm I just feel like Millie Bobby Brown. There, there has to be, and I don't want to shit on anyone who's 16. I don't think that's fair, but th there is something, there is a, like a, a nuance that comes with age. When you get older and you see a bit more of life, and I'm not trying to sort of negate the fact that she hasn't seen life. She probably has done. I mean, she, her family were bankrupt before she, she had to do Stranger Things. Like she, she saved uh, her family and her, her future um, in a world that would, would have probably had to show up to live in council houses. Like she's seen a world there on the, on the, on the, you know, on the, the cusp of going broke. So I don't want to sort of go against her as a person, but I just think that when you're 16 and you're trying to make a film about empowering women, I think there has to be a layer of understanding about, right, well, it's it's it might be slightly tone deaf to have him in here, her in here, or this in here, or the director's probably not right. So maybe she doesn't actually have, maybe the production credit is, is in questionable then, I don't know. Maybe it's just a service level, I, I'm not too sure. I hope it's not, because I think she's a good voice. I mean, she brings a shit ton of people to watch that film, and I, I probably it's probably absolutely banged on Netflix. Would it have done well in cinemas? Probably. I mean, she, she's definitely there, but just again, not to sort of go, go around here. Millie Bobby Brown, exceptional. The film, Tosh, it's absolute, absolute, as 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 anyone from Scotland would say, it's pish. Um, uh, but the, it, again, it, there's charm and charisma that pulls it through. But at the end of the day, I felt this was so hollow. And so maybe I'm just going to fucking lose a play again. I'm going to have to just rate this lower like I did with tonight. I'm going to have to put it as a, as a two or something. I'm fucking tired of doing that. No one trusts me in my reviews. They'll always change. Uh, but again, I need to move this on because I've spoke way too much about uh, Sherlock Holmes spin-off about feminism. And, and uh, I probably just butchered everything. But um, surface level, A-OK. -okay. Anything underneath? problematic on every single level imaginable yeah it doesn't seem like too shocking of a fact that this is written by a the screenwriter is a man too it's based on a book by a woman but the screenwriter is a man different than the director so it's not like a director and writer like they're both the same person um we talk about empty representation i think this is just a perfect example of it netflix has done a really wonderful marketing campaign actually putting statues 
of girls next to their statues of their brothers and family members who are male who've gotten like all this recognition and they've kind of been forgotten. This movie is like outwardly, like you said, on the surface level, really actually doing a wonderful job with representation. But when you watch it, it's apparent that this is just supposed to be a very digestible kids movie or teen movie, I guess you could say, you could even go that far. But for younger audiences, this is not meant to be something revolutionary or really have even that distinctive voice in these conversations. It's meant to have enough of a conversation to where Netflix can, well, I say Netflix, this is not made by Netflix. So, you know, not gonna fully blame Netflix and put the morals of this film on the student, on them. Um, but this is meant for the film to be able to pat itself on the back and say, oh, we're doing a good job fighting, uh, you know, sexist ideals in the world without actually getting into it. So I, we talk every week at this point about like, you know, we're throwing the dart and oh, it hit, ne it hit Netflix and Enola Holmes, not Disney this week. That's pretty shocking. It's just another example of like, yeah, on the surface level, cool, you know, they have a couple of female producers, a female lead. Um, ultimately, this is made by men and it's really empty. Can I just add the inevitable and please indulge me here. Um, and it'd be nice, you and if you want to start, because I can imagine your thoughts will be wicked and wild here. Is it out of the possibility that we've got a franchise on our hands here that's a definite thing? Or, I mean, it does sort of, it does, there's no like sequel bit in Ava here, don't get me wrong, but there is an indication of like, go forth into the world child, you know, indulge. And, uh, you know, you know, I can see that Enola Holmes, not only the character, but also Millie Bobby Brown can go forward with this and, and they can touch on things within the, this set period era. There's definitely something to, to be had here. And if they rope in Henry Cavill, Sam Claflin, yeah, 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 great stuff, yeah, 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 whatever. But I think there's most definitely a conscious future here where Netflix... We'll probably, if we're getting bright too, I mean, fucking hell, come on. The, the, Enola Holmes is most definitely, we've got the kissing move three. There's most definitely room for Enola Holmes. My issue with that is, and I'm not, I don't want to put uh, words in people's mouths, is that we've, we've mentioned it a few times. As this isn't actually a Netflix production, this has been built by Warner Brothers and Legendary Pictures. That means it's had a cinematic budget, which is going to be in the realm of 100 million. It will have to have been. Cavill, it's got an assembled cast, it's a period piece, it's not cheap. So let's say it's 100 million. I think that's out of the ballpark for, for Netflix to have actual producers have financed it. So if they bring the level down to, let's say, 50 to 75, which I think they can do with this, I think most definitely they can bring something down. If that means to get rid of a few people and have glorified cameos rather than supporting roles, that may be, I don't know. But I think this is most definitely going to, we're not going to see the end of this. I just don't see it. I think we will see Enola Holmes. And I think we'll see it sooner rather than later as well. Well, it's like what you said about the Henry Cavill and Sam Claflin. It's they, they don't really need them. They've got Enola Holmes. They've got Millie Bobby Brown. She's obviously got ties with Netflix thanks to Stranger Things. So sequel-wise, it's very easy to just sort of get rid of Cavill, Claflin and Carter, just sort of push them to the wayside, have Enola Holmes go off on her own adventures with a whole host of new supporting cast members. It's um, it's it's very easy, and especially if, if they cut those three out, there's, you know, a big budget saved, and it's I, I don't know, it, it, it does seem like one of those things where it's you can see two or three of these getting prepped and ready to go, and it's, yeah. it's quite worrying. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's if, if you get, like, Fiona Shaw's in this for about five, ten minutes, so if you can get sort of those sort of little roles from recognisable people, then that's enough to bolster up the whole uh, support and cast issue. 
I also th- I, I would also agree. There's a lot of um, I mean, Bo- uh, Burn um, Gorman turns up here, which I also I've always sort of slightly liked ever since his little devilish turn in layer cake, and he he's definitely sort of making a a name for himself in these these budget things, but on a slow level. I mean, he's he's quite big in London. He's quite big in England with you know his Israel on Torchwood and and uh, here there and everywhere. So they've definitely got sort of a celebration of, of wonderful English actors. I mean. Fiona Shaw is, is is an actress that never really gets a, a, a sort of pride and joy through through her work. I mean, as everyone knows, she's she's a Dursley out of Harry Potter, but I think this is a very similar franchise sort of mentality to Harry Potter, where it can go forward with having quite a few really good, proud English actors and actresses who who work on scale, who, who work for for the for the actual um, you know idea of wanting to build character i mean harry potter did that i mean like likes of warwick davis and stuff like that and, you know it did get more hollywood th- throughout don't get me wrong but i still think it has like a really good idea ideology of wanting to sort of celebrate a- actors and actresses i mean it'd just be interesting to see how, how it goes forward because obviously millie bobby brown 16 she's going to age in the next 10 years she's going to change as an actress she's going to change as a performer she's going to change as a person so Will she be wanting to do a Nola Holmes at 18 playing a, a 15-year-old? Or will it will it be an 18-year-old at that point? How will she feel when she's 24 making a film like this for this target audience? Is it going to evolve with the times? Is it going to evolve with the nature of her as a person? There's a lot. There's, I mean, Stranger Things is also going to have to struggle with that, although I think that's probably more under control. Although... Finn Wolfhard looks 33 now, not 11. So how they're going to do that as well is going to be questionable. But again, it's just an interesting dilemma to have because there is money here. There's money to be had, undoubtedly. But it's just a, it's an idea of how do they sort of move forward here to make it comfortable for Brown to, to, to do, but also not to sort of shit the bed and, and really get a good team under its wings. I'm not, I'm not too sure. I mean... Would I want to? Re- I don't know if I even want to see another one. I like Millie Bobby Brown. That's the thing. I think she's got so much charisma, and I think she's really refreshing. I don't think there's anyone at this moment in time who has that ability to sort of. I don't know. I just think she's one one of a kind, and I think if if Netflix let this go, I think more so than not, they'll, they'll definitely regret it. But in a producing in a production capacity, and being a producer as she is, and being also the lead, it's most definitely down to her. She's probably made that deal with Netflix. So I think she'll have rights. Well, she'll have right. I think she'll definitely have rights, but I think she'll have rights on the fact of the material in, in itself. I think we'll find more in a few weeks to come of when Netflix releases daunting numbers, which a hundred billion people have seen in its first week because it clicked on a, you know, its trailer, which I think is also questionable. There's a lot of questionable things about Netflix at the moment, but I think this is undoubtedly at home there, which is weird to say because I, I somewhat enjoy the film surface level alone I, I'll, I, I will watch an old homes too I will do I'll be there and I think they'll have to sort of cater that one they? they'll have they'll have to go that way I'm just trying to think of Netflix sequels that are good or remotely a thing I know you've got what bright two that hasn't been released yet I don't know if anyone else I don't know if anyone else has any ideas of any Netflix sequels that have been well the received Christmas Chronicles 2 is coming out but... oh with Kurt Russell oh, oh how yeah. did I forget this year, yeah. the trailer just got released. Yeah, I mean, that's something to, to definitely behold, isn't it? I think um, the sequel's, like, undoubtedly coming. When you look at Netflix's model right now, which is just quantity, it's insane to me that for, like, a month and for the foreseeable future, every week they have a release of substance. 
like it's actually quite impressive even if the films themselves aren't very good especially if you do pull like a kissing booth two and three and you just film them back to back that might be an thing to solve the millie bobby brown issue of her aging up i undoubtedly think we're gonna see probably three enola Holmes. it feels like a trilogy in my opinion it feels like uh sorry uh, for millie bobby brown it feels like sort of a portfolio piece where it's like i've worked with these people i've worked with this director and then it's sort of her getting a foot in the door for cinematic releases, especially with Enola Holmes, because there's a lot of potential here to, if for a sequel, for instance, if they want to say, all right, we'll get this actor, this actor, and this actress, bring them in, and then we can say, oh, well, Millie Bobby Brown has worked with these people. She's got the experience of working with a number of different directors or actors that have different styles. So it's sort of, it would be a good career choice in regard to working with people with different experience in acting. I think as, as an audience member, I'd, I'd, I don't think I'd, want to watch another one i think I'd, I'd sit through it but i'm not exactly clamoring for one it's like it's like what jack and yourself have been saying where it's what netflix sequels are actually good when so many of their originals aren't even good in the first place like the babysitter 2 came out i've not seen either of those but i've heard you know they're solid which is the, that's sort of the bar for netflix now if they can get something solid out then that's great <laughs> I mean, look at Netflix and just how powerful they are as a connection. Not only do they make, like, especially if you want to build your career and even possibly, like, eventually get into the award season, award conversation, Netflix always makes, like, 10 or 12, you know, like, award consideration films. But even past that, they work with every major director at this point. I mean, most of them, at least. Like, I know, like, Wes Anderson hasn't quite worked with them. Christopher Nolan, obviously. But, like, Martin Scorsese, like, Alfonso Cuaron, like, they're working with these major directors. So, like, Netflix in its own is, like, this hub. And if you can get in that hub and be on good terms, like Millie Bobby Brown possibly will be, I mean, that's a great connection to meet other directors, do their products, or do just work on Netflix projects. Because just in the realm of Netflix, you can do pretty much anything you want to do, whether you want to be in any genre, you want to go for any award, you want to be any level of actor, that's all in the Netflix sphere. So as long as Netflix survives, I think just being in that bubble is a great place to be as an actor. I just want to echo that as well. I mean, you took the word straight out of my mouth. This Academy Award um, recognition, I can see that there's a team being built around Millie Bobby Brown and herself is definitely probably one that's that's at the, the, the headstrong about it. But I think they're most de- definitely aiming for an Academy Award at one point or another. It reminds me a few years about, ago about the DiCaprio issue where it was like, you could just tell that him and his team were gunning at every single possibility to try and get that Academy Award win. At every possibility. And obviously got one with The Revenant. I don't think particularly that was one that should have been awarded to him for that performance. I think his, his work before that has been um, exceptionally good, especially his, his turn as Howard Hughes in The Aviator, which is another underrated and underseen um, Martin Scorsese picture. But ultimately, I think that Molly Bobby Brown is probably going to gun for that. And then we say about the portfolio work, like Ewan said, I think that's a great example of this is just ticks a little bit of a box, you know. She's getting the portfolio worked up. She'll be working with a lot more producers. I mean, I, obviously, not, it's unprofessional to say this, but for her to work, have, a, have a first look deal with, with Warner Brothers, to then sell this to Netflix is such a baller move. It's unbelievable. Like, that is some high-quality producing thing that you can bullshit Netflix to say, you know, I've got this film. I've worked with you on Stranger Things. I've got you an Emma. Come on. Like, let's just let's make a deal. Let's just buy the rights for 25 mil. And I'd love to know how much they bought it for. Oh, dear me, I would love to know because I, I think they'd be regretting every single penny of it. But, all, but nevertheless, 
if, if it wasn't good for Warner Brothers and it goes to Netflix, like Holmes and Watson, if they're going to touch that away and they've accepted this, obviously they're two very different films. Maybe, we'll, maybe we should... Maybe they did that because they didn't want to sort of confuse us as stupid audience members that there was a franchise builder, you know? John C. Riley and, and, and Will Ferrell as Holmes and Watson and then you have Enola Holmes. They've just missed a the boat there. They definitely have, to, have done, sorry. But uh, we've got, just going back to the point, I just I bet she bet she is um, at the center of everything now. I think she's definitely one of the most positive, unironic sort of pulls for Netflix at the moment in time because you you have got the likes of the Kissing Booth two and three, which I actually it makes you cringe just saying that aloud. And then you have got the you know this is my Star Wars Max Landis Bright two, which is not going to be involved in any capacity, as well as director David Ayer. So that'll be interesting to see how that develops. I mean the Kissing uh, sorry God I've just so I blacked out for a second then. Uh, you've got the likes of, you know, the babysitter killer queen, uh, McGee's back, which I find hilarious. Uh, you know, and those films have got like this cult status now with the Vine stars, Bella Thorne. Um, so there's a lot. And obviously, as much as we don't, I, I don't want to say it, but it is true. Uh, the actual clicks and, uh, you know, response to Netflix during the cuties debacle will be astonishingly high as well. And they'll play that off. They'll, they'll play that off, no doubt. Um you know, I can definitely see a few trailers coming with with that advertised within within the uh, you know structure of the whole uh, medium. So yeah, I definitely think that that they've got a really good. Uh, the well, they've essentially got the golden child, haven't they? They've got the one to watch. And Netflix don't really have that. I mean, yes, they've got they've got Mank with David Fincher coming with the Gary Oldman thing. I think that's going to get uh, not controversial, but I think that's going to get sort of a quite lackluster response from uh, the Academy Awards. I just don't see. After Roma, I just don't see them biting that. I mean, the Emmys, fucking hell, they love Netflix. They adore Netflix. This, I just, I just think with with Netflix and film, Netflix film and and, and the Academy Awards, they just don't have a relationship. And I think there's a lot more power powerhouses within the, the the medium of cinema. Spielberg, one of them, was made mention of it. But if you've got the likes of Cuaron, Fincher, Scorsese, you know, um, again, there's a, there's a few here and there who haven't worked with them, but don't get me wrong, there's a lot of powerhouses there. Millie Bobby Brown is, is good to have have the ace in, 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 in the fold. I just think that it had been interesting to see how much this would have made within, within cinema releases, because it definitely has the pull of Brown herself. But is she really established as a leading actress in a, in, a, in a sort of sophomore effort? I don't know. I don't know. Because I, I can see this making a decent amount of, of, of cash at the box office. All said and done in, in it, obviously, without the issues that are going on now. But I don't think uh, King, King, uh, Godzilla King of Monsters did particularly astonishing at the box office. I know it got mixed results. I know she was, again, a highlight within a film, but, you know, you can be a nice part of the puzzle but ultimately the puzzle speaks for itself uh so not not to keep on going on but i definitely think that netflix have got one here i just i just don't know how long they'll be able to keep on hold of her because the duffer brothers have said that you know there's there's an end game to stranger things that as a lifespan may have two or three two or three more seasons let's say and they'll probably finish off again with a film great for them i just don't think that Millie Bobby Brown will be around Netflix as much as they probably think she will be. Maybe they'll, they'll do the El Camino route with the with the, with the film. I, I don't know, but I just think that that's slowly but surely coming to an end of Stranger Things. But you know, you speak of Shit's Creek, which got you know an absolute astonishing amount of Emmy wins the other day, and they've just put that through syndication. That's unheard of. 
that's that is that is something that's not getting enough credit for. That's unheard of for a Netflix uh, program to get sold to syndication. So again, um, Netflix have got highs and lows like everybody does, but I just think that it'll. Be, I think this is a proving point that Millie Bobby Brown can do cinema as well. She can do TV. She doesn't have to do sort of small format anymore. Uh, although I don't think she'll be being enraptured by the Netflix ideology as soon as she realizes that she can work with some powerhouses and get the norms. Because at one point, Chloe Grace Moretz was that person. She's worked with Scorsese. She's worked with on Suspiria. She's worked with a whole host of, of these influential pieces of cinema. I mean, she's, she's, she's great in the Matt Reeves, let the right one in remake. Um, and then she, she sort of aged to a point where she could take on more adult oriented roles and she's done some very interesting work. Her film at TIFF this year has got sort of a decent uh, little buzz around it. But I think it'd be a very, she was at one point, I, be, I don't know if she's Academy nominated or not, I don't know, but she was at one point going to have that sort of, that mentality of, you know, she was getting pushed to be that next Meryl Streep at the age of 16, 17, 18. I feel like the same thing's going to have it happen with Millie Bobby Brown, but I think it's different because I think... Chloe Grace Ferretz is an actress and that's no detriment to her whatsoever, but it's coming across now that I don't know if this is intentional or this is, you know, being put towards us, but I think they're trying to project that Millie Bobby Brown is a businesswoman. And obviously in Hollywood, they're very two different ball games. And I don't think Netflix will want to work with a businesswoman. They'll want to work with the actress, which is a detriment to their cause. Undoubtedly, that's how I feel it'll go. To round out Clappercast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. So Carson, do you want to end it off this week with uh, your recommendation? Sure. Going back to Netflix, one film kind of small that dropped on it recently was Residue. I've mentioned before, Arrain Now is just incredible work this year, being a distributor, putting really unique and diverse voices on a Netflix where they're widely available. Um, and I, I don't think Residue is quite the best film they've put out this year. This is an inspired look at how a community naturally changes due to internal and external forces uh, just naturally throughout a lifetime and how that's kind of tragic in a sense. There is a lot here about gentrification and just like the negative effects of trying to change a community and how that can put actual pain on the people who already live there. Um, beautiful cinematography. When this film is trying to be really, really subtle, it connects with haunting just effects. I mean, it is a devastating film at times. Uh, it does have its moments where it tries to be a little bit more on the nose and a little bit more brash, which is where the film starts to feel like it's biting off a little bit more than it could chew. Um, but overall, Residue is yet another diverse voice. Um, for everything I say about Netflix and how shitty they are, what they're doing with Array now, I think is truly special. I think it's important. And I think it speaks not just to it right now, but also to at least some side within Netflix trying to actually help these diverse voices. Um, and I, you know, every chance I'll get, I'll support them. So, Ewan, what have you got as your recommendations this week? I'm going to give a very cautious recommendation to a film called Lost Transmissions. It's the debut of director Catherine O'Brien. Uh, Simon Pegg and Juno Temple are absolutely phenomenal. In it. Uh, Simon Pegg plays a record producer with schizophrenia, and it's about his battle with sort of getting back on the wagon and sort of uh, mellowing out as he helps this new artist come to light, played by Juno Temple. And it's um, it's ever since I had that conversation with Richard Lett in the interview I did for Clapper about how mental illness and alcoholism is shown in film. It, it wasn't until then that I was like, there are very few examples of where it's shown well and Lost Transmissions. It's a problematic film from a narrative standpoint, but 
as far as its representation of illness and how we deal with it goes, it, it's it's very great. It's really it it muses on some important points that would otherwise go unnoticed, and I think that's the best credit it can get. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clubbercast. Where can we find both of you on social media, Ewan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ewan Gledo. And Carson? You can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews or on Letterboxd, just Carson tomorrow. And you can find myself uh, with a username on both Letterboxd and Twitter at Jack Luke Sharp. And you can find all of those releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter as well as Letterboxd. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. And thank you all for listening. We're back next week to discuss all things cinema. To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.